Today we're in this series called Deeply Rooted. This is the last sermon in this series called Deeply Rooted. And we're calling this, what I've titled this message, Cultivating the Soil. Uh, Jesus talked about this. The, the disciples talked about this. Apostle Paul is talking about this. And talking about the importance of cultivating the soil, the soil of your heart, heart the soil of your life. And so we'll be in Ephesians, uh, Ephesians chapter 4, verse 20 through 24. And then uh, Romans chapter 12, verses 1 and 2 is where we'll be this weekend. And uh, while you're turning there or clicking there, uh, let, me, let me tell you about uh, something about our house. And so uh, many years ago in 97, we bought a house here in Pueblo. And on the side of the garage was a lilac bush and, uh, and a small pine tree. And so my wife fell in love. We'd never been around a lilac bush ever before. And so all of a sudden, when it bloomed for the first time, my wife falls in love with a lilac bush. Uh, and I mean, they make big flowers, and they produce big flowers, and the fragrance, and all that other stuff. She brings them in the house, so our house smells like, you know, lilacs, and all that other stuff. And so she loved it. I hated it, because it just meant I had to take more uh, Allegra. I mean, it just, it just, my allergies were like horrible with it. But anyway, and so over the years, we've had this lilac bush, and so she's always looked forward to when it produces lilacs. Well, over the last several years, this plant or the bush began uh, producing less and less flowers. We didn't know why. And so we were kind of concerned by that, or she was, I wasn't. And so, uh, so we tried to water it more, we tried to fertilize it more, and so none of, none of those things really worked and until this last year. And so this last year, the lilac bush doesn't produce anything. I mean, like, it looks like it's dying, and so, and so she's concerned about it, and so... So, but about the same time, I had this tree trimmer guy come out because we had this big tree in the front yard, and for some reason, my wife thought a professional should do it this time instead of me and attempted it again. And so I, I call this tree trimmer guy, and he comes, and he's looking at the tree, and he, he's giving me a price. And so he looks over at the other side of the driveway, and he looks over at the lilac bush, and he says, hey, I'm surprised you can even get that bush to live. I'm like, why would you say that? He said, well, well, you see, he says, everything was probably okay when the pine tree was small. And, um, but he says, as the, the pine tree is aged and as the pine tree has gotten larger, its limbs are coming closer and closer and closer to the lilac bush, and the drippings from a pine tree are very acidic. And so a, a lilac bush does not do well in an acidic soil. And he says, eventually the pine tree is going to kill a lilac bush. In other words... In the life of a plant, in the life of a tree, in the life of a believer, the soil of your heart, your soil, cultivating the soil means everything. I mean, we've learned in this series that, that whatever is planted in you will, will, will produce fruit in your life, bad or good. Uh, whatever is rooted in you sooner or later will break the surface of your life. It will just sooner, sooner or later come out. And so the importance, what Paul is saying, the importance of this issue of understanding how to cultivate the soil of your life. Now listen, and I, it's, it's one thing to be able to see the signs, but it's another thing to be able to know what to do. I mean, we could see the signs with the lilac bush. We could see that it was dying. We could see that it wasn't producing. We didn't know what to do. This tree trimmer guy, he knew what to do. He knew the cause. I, I don't know if you're seeing the signs in our culture. To our culture is becoming more and more acidic to the local church. It's becoming more and more acidic to Bible-believing Christians. I mean, this last week, it's just still unbelievable to me. Um, the city that I, I, that I was born in, Houston, Texas, fourth largest city in the nation right now. Uh, Houston, Texas, where I was born, uh, where I was raised, I 
I met Christ there. I met my wife Karen there. We were married there. Uh, we started a family there. Uh, God called me from Houston, Texas to come to Pueblo and to plant a church. Uh, I mean, Houston, Texas, fourth largest city in the, in, in, in the U.S., and it would be considered the, the buckle on the Bible belt. Well, about six months ago, the, the mayor, Mayor Parker, decides to pass an ordinance. And she passes an ordinance about gender identity. To really and truly, there's no longer difference between male and female. And so this gender identity became a huge issue. To where she decided and passed an ordinance through city council to where all public bathrooms, there's no longer any gender identity. To where a man can use a female's restroom and a female can use a man's restroom as long as they feel like or think they're a male or a female. And this presented a lot of trouble in Houston, Texas for families. Because this was all public restrooms. Religious organizations, church were exempt, but it was all religious organizations. So now mom and dad could not feel comfortable sending their little boy or little girl to a bathroom because they didn't know who would be in there. So a coalition developed and, and they wanted to get enough signatures so that they could get a referendum on the, on the November ballot uh, to overturn the ordinance. And there were some churches uh, that helped with, with, with that and helped with some of those signatures, uh, which is their right. And so they, got, they gathered 50,000 signatures. They only needed 17,500. They got 50,000. The, the, the city clerk uh, certified every one of the signatures, said it was valid, uh, accepted it. And then the city attorney and the city mayor went through them and disallowed every one of them and said they were illegal. As a result of that, this group sues the city. The pastors were not a part of it. And so they sue the city. And the mayor and the city attorney, in turn, subpoena the five top pastors of the largest churches in, in Houston, Texas, subpoenas their sermons, their text messages, their email correspondence, wanted them to document any private conversations that they had about gender, biblical marriage, identity, and all those issues. Who had ever thought in America? The pastor said that we're not doing it. And they said, fine, you'll be in contempt of court and many of you will go to jail. State attorneys involved, some other things, and, and it's a mess and, it's, it's, and it'll get worked out. Who had ever thought that we live in a land where the culture becomes more and more acidic, begins to encroach more and more and more on the local church? Some denominations are caving. Others are standing strong. When we look at this issue, we find that in Ephesus, when Paul wrote this, their culture was more acidic to the local church than our culture is to us. I believe through the period that we're headed into, it will purify the local church. It will help Christ get his bride ready. But Paul talks about this, and Paul talks about this issue that, that when, you, when you look at this issue, when you deal with this issue, you have got to cultivate the soul of your own heart, in your own church, in your own life. Here's what he says in Ephesians chapter 4, verse 20. He says, But this is not the way you learn Christ, assuming that you have heard about him and were taught in him as the truth is in Jesus, to put off your old self. So in other, in other words, in the Christian life, there is something you have to put off, which belongs to your former manner of life and is corrupt through deceitful desires and to be renewed in the spirit of your minds 
and to put on this new self. So there's something you take off, there's something you put on, created after the likeness of God in true righteousness and holiness. And then Paul explains a little bit more about this transformation process, about cultivating your soil. In Romans chapter 12, verse 1, and he says, And I appeal to you. In other words, I beg, I plead with you. I, I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. Do not conform to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind, that by testing you may discern what is the will of God, what is good and acceptable and perfect. Listen, I want to give you three things that I think are just critical for the society that we live in, the culture that we live in. And I think it's critical for us to understand about this spiritual formation or this transformation process that happens in the believer's life. Now, I know in your notes, if you're following along in your notes, there's like one point and three subpoints. Um, it's just three distinct points, so don't let that confuse you. So the first principle, the first point is this in spiritual formation. Spiritual formation is intentional. In other words, it's something that you do. It's something that you decide to do. Paul would say in Ephesians that it's something that you take off and it's something that you, that you put on. I mean, in other words, Paul begins to talk in very practical ways. I mean, we'll never really be able to influence some people. And Paul's like, you know, worry about yourself. You'll only have to give an, listen, you will only have to give an account for yourself. You'll only have to give an account for how you lived your life, for the decisions you made, for the choices that you made. And so Paul's talking about this issue of cultivating your soil is critical. In Romans chapter 12, verse 1, he gives, he says, he says, I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual act of worship. In other words, he's saying this, you commit your total life to Christ. Some people make, the, <coughs> make understanding God's will very, very difficult and very hard. Let me, let, me make, let me tell you why it's so difficult for many people. Because a lot of people aren't worried about God's will, aren't thinking about God's will, aren't praying about God's will. They're praying about the results. They're praying about, Lord, Lord I tell you what, you, you tell me what you want me to do. You tell me how this ends up for me. And if you show me how it ends up for me, and if I like that, if I agree to that, then I'll do it. But see, that's not the way God's will works. The starting point of knowing, or, or knowing God's will and learning God's will is this. In advance, you tell God, God, whatever... I'm totally committed to you. Whatever you ask me to do, I'll do. Really and truly, I committed to Pueblo, Colorado years before I ever knew this is what he wanted me to do. When I was in Beattlestock, Poland, I'm doing mission work, and that's where God just really broke me. And I told God, God, you ever call me to ministry again, you ever ask me to go to ministry, I don't care where it is, I don't care when, I'll do it. I'll do it. At that moment, I didn't realize it. But I was saying yes, not only to his will, but I was saying yes to Pueblo, Colorado. See, the starting point of knowing God's will in your life is to be all in. The starting point of knowing God's will in your life is to say, I'm totally committed to Christ, and whatever he asks me to do, I will do it. That's why, look at this, in, in verse 1 again in Romans, he says, he answers the question of why we should live the intentional life. He said, I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the, by the mercies of God. So why do I dedicate my life to him? Why is it intentional? The reason that I dedicate my life to him, I don't, I don't know what your life looked like when you met Christ. My life was a wreck. And that's an understatement. My life was a disaster. It's wild when, when your life is a disaster. 
and you get into that mode, even though your life is a disaster, you still think you're the smartest one of the bunch, even smarter than God, right? You just keep doing the same stuff over and over and over. When I met Christ and I was set free from my past, and I was no longer who, who defined by my sins and my past and that former way of life. That's why he says, I, I appeal to you by the, by the mercies of God. What God has done for you. That when we're stuck in our sins and when we're dead in our sins, that Jesus Christ, who knew no sin, became sin for us, and he went to the cross, he took our sin on. And he bled and he died and he rose again on the third day. It says, when we were still sinners, he pursued us, he went after us, and he totally and completely forgave us. And the reason we commit our life to him is because what he has done for us. See, see religious pride, the religious person that believes they're really an authority over Scripture and they determine what is Scripture and what is not Scripture and, what is a, and all that other stuff, religious pride. Religious pride says, look what I have done and God, you owe me. You, you need to forgive my sins. You need to work stuff out with my wife. You need to work stuff out with my husband. You need to answer my prayers. You need to keep me happy and wealthy and, and all those other things. I mean, God, look, I mean, religious pride is, look at me. You answer all of my prayers. You forgive me all of my prayers. And, oh, and God, I don't owe you anything. Christianity is totally different. Christianity looks at what God has done for them and says, because of what you've done for me, I owe you everything. I mean, I owe you my life, forgiveness of sin and eternal life and peace and all of those other things. And so it's completely the opposite. But, but Paul makes this just so, he makes it so simple because he says living the intentional life is, is basically three things. The first thing is this, it's voluntary. In other words, in other words freedom of will. You, you have freedom of will. You can make a choice or you don't. He's not going to make you do anything. And so it's voluntary. He says present your bodies. I mean, this phrase in the Greek, is the phrase that, that we would use for uh, placing a reservation on a, on a table. Like if it's your anniversary or special birthday or you're celebrating something and, and you call that expensive restaurant and, and that only takes reservations. And you call them and you give them your name and you tell them the time that you're going to be there. They will take a table and they will set it apart. They will set it aside and they will place your name on it and says this table is totally and, re and completely reserved for. It's voluntary. But you're placing a res reservation sign on your life and say, God, I'm totally and completely dedicated to you. And my life is totally reserved for you. It's, it's not only voluntary, it's, it's practical. He says, offer your bodies. Now listen, a lot of times when I read Scripture, I don't know if you're like this, but when I read Scripture, I'll, I'll say, you know what, if I was God, I wouldn't have phrased it like that. If I was God, I wouldn't have said it like that, right? And so I'm like, why would God ask for our bodies? Why, I mean... I mean, I would think it would be, uh, give me your mind, give me your soul, give me your spirit. It, no. He says, offer your bodies. You know why I think it? I, I finally, I finally, I think I figured it out. Because when he has your body, he has you. I mean, when he has your body, he has all of you. He has your heart, your mind, and your soul. And, have, have you ever called anyone and asked them to help you move? Right? I mean, if you're that guy with the truck, you know you get a lot of phone calls. 
And someone calls you, and, and, but, but have you ever called someone and asked them to help you move it? In church, have you ever called someone and said, hey, listen, I'm doing a ministry tonight. Would you volunteer? Would you help? Would you come? And so in Christian circles, you know, we know it's just not, it's not Christian needs to say no. You know, you just kind of, you know, you blame God. Say, well, it's, you know, God's not asking me to do it, so I'm not going to do it. But you don't really say no. But have you ever had someone, you call them and say, hey, would you come help? Would you volunteer for this? And someone on the phone looks at or, or tells you, says, boy, I wish I could, but I'll be there in spirit. <laughs> right? Oh, you know what? I can't come, but I'll pray for you. Was that ever helpful? No, absolutely not. It's just a nice way of saying no. It's just a pleasant way of saying no. And God knows this. God knows if he has your body, he has you. If he has your body, he has your heart, your mind, and your soul. And so he simply says, it's voluntary, it's practical, then it's complete. He says this, he says, present your bodies as a living sacrifice. There's a difference between a dead sacrifice and a living sacrifice. In the Old Testament, it was a, it was a dead sacrifice. In the New Testament, it's a living sacrifice. And there's a difference between a dead sacrifice and a living sacrifice, right? Sometimes a dead sacrifice is easier. Than, well, all the time a dead sacrifice is much easier because a dead sacrifice won't crawl off the altar, right? A living sacrifice. Well, you can place yourself on the altar on Sunday and you can crawl off on Monday or Tuesday or Wednesday when things get difficult. Has that ever happened to you where you're in church and it's worship or whatever and you make all these commitments to God? God, I'm going to do this, I'm going to change this, I'm in, I'm all in, and all this other stuff. And all of a sudden, Monday hits, or Tuesday hits, or Wednesday hits, and life hits, and culture hits, and, and the world's acidic, and not very supportive, and all that other stuff. And all of a sudden, you crawl off the altar. You know what he's saying when he says to present your bodies as a living sacrifice? He said, I, I, want, a, I want a sacrifice that's alive, because a living sacrifice, telling you, a living sacrifice is a daily commitment. See, a living sacrifice, it's not a one-time commitment. It's not just on the weekends. It's not, it's not just when you meet Christ. A living sacrifice is a, is a daily commitment. I mean, it is a commitment when things get tough that daily you've got to, God, I'm re, I am recommitting my life to you. God, I'm rededicating my life to you. I am committing. I'm, I'm going to be a living sacrifice. I'm going to work this out. It's so interesting that that phrase, holy and acceptable to God in the Greek, means that it's well-pleasing. It's well-pleasing to God. Now listen, this may be new to some of you because not a lot of churches talk about this. But I want you to understand it. Do you realize you can bless the heart of God? It's a crazy thing to think about, right? The creator of the universe, the one that hung the stars and the moon and breathed life, Do you realize you can bless the heart of God? Do you realize the way in which you worship blesses the heart of God? Makes God happy. The fact is, it's all through the Psalms. That's why our worship is just so critical here. The way in which you live your life and bless the heart of God. Let me ask you just, you parents, haven't your kids blessed your heart? Not when they just gave you something, but when they did something that honored you, 
or put something in practice. I'm telling you, he said, he said it's holy and acceptable. In other words, it's just well pleasing to God that worship, worship is blessing the heart of God. And worship is when we commit our whole life to him, our time, our talents, our energy, our resources. See, the religious person says, man, I'm in this for me. I'm in this just for eternal life. Because all good people go to heaven. I mean, religious people will tell you that, that God's at the top of the mountain. There's just plenty of paths to him. You know what the Bible says? Jesus made the statement. Jesus says, I'm the way, the truth, and the life, and no man comes to the Father except through me. Second thing about, about spiritual formation is this. Is spiritual formation is a lifestyle. I mean, it, it, it's just like this living sacrifice, verse 2. Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind, that by testing you may discern what is the will of God, what is good and acceptable and perfect. One of the reasons that, that a lot of people aren't living a changed life is because they're more dedicated to the world than they are to the Word. Or they're more dedicated to the world than they are to the, to the Lord. And I mean, when you, I, once this story in, in, in Houston came out, I decided to say, well, I wonder what the latest statistics are. How many Christians are there in America? So I Google it. One website said there's 80% of Americans are believers. You believe that? No. Uh, don't you think our culture would be different if 80% of Americans were Christ followers? Were following after him? In fact, is one statistic says when you get right down to it and you start asking the hard questions, you realize that only 1 in 10 in America are Bible-believing Christians. Stand on the truths of Scripture. Spiritual formation is a lifestyle. It, it, it's understanding this issue about not being conformed to the world. And he's not talking about people. I mean, Jesus said, Jesus says that, that, that I love everyone. I died forever. I love the world. He's talking about a, the spirit of this age. He's talking about a world's value system. In other words, don't adapt or don't adopt this world's value system. Don't conform to that. I mean, the Phillips translation, I love how the Phillips translation puts it. He says, don't let the world squeeze you into its mold. Now, listen, I, I, uh, I like Peanuts cartoons. I know that's pretty deep. And I, the fact is, I have, have volumes in my office of all the Peanut cartoons that Charles Schultz has ever written. And, uh, and sometimes for reading, uh, I know, I hope this doesn't. And they're like, wow, we thought our pastor was a lot smarter than this. Uh, a lot of times, I'll read through the Peanut cartoons. And there's one of my favorite when Charlie Brown is talking to Lucy and Charlie Brown, they're having this conversation and Charlie Brown looks at Lucy and says, well, you know what? I can stand any kind of pressure there is except for peer pressure. <laughs> That's really true, right? And a lot of times when we start talking about peer pressure, we, we, we hammer the kids, right? Uh, we, 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 we yell at the kids. We yell at the, the middle school kids or the high school kids or the college kids. And, yeah, you need to stand up to peer pressure, you know. And, we, you know, the famous line, if your friends jump over the cliff, will you jump over the cliff, right? And when we say all of that stuff, and we as adults, we act like peer pressure is non-existent in our life. But I'm telling you, adults, we deal with peer pressure the same way that the students do. 
And so the question is this. The question is, is how can we be in the world but not of the world, is what the Bible talks about. How can we not allow the world to squeeze us into its, its mold? And I, I think there's three different ways. There's, there's two ways traditionally that churches try to do that or Christians have tried to do that. And there's one way that's biblical. The first one is this. There's a lot of Christians and they just isolate. Okay, so they know they're, they're in the world, but not going to be of the world, so they're going to isolate. And so they don't, they don't watch movies, they don't read any magazines, they don't read any secular books, um, they, they don't go to certain places, uh, they dress differently, and if you've ever come across those that are kind of Christians that, are, that isolate, you know in the way that they dress, you can spot them a mile away, right? I mean, they, they just, they're just different. But the Bible never said for us to isolate because he called us to, to reach the world. So if we isolate from the world, how are we going to influence the world? There's another group of Christians that says, you know, it's not isolation. We'll imitate. In other words, we'll imitate the world. And so we'll just, we'll be like the world. And so they take the verse that Paul said, um, and they take it out of context, and it says, we'll become all things to all people, so he may win a few. And so they said, you know what? We'll look like, we'll smell like, we'll talk like, we'll talk like the world in hopes that we can influence them. That never works. And so God didn't call us to isolate, and he didn't call us to imitate the world, but here's what he did call us to, and that is to insulate. In other words, that's what we're doing with the lilac bush right now. I mean, we're taking that lilac bush, and we're trying to insulate it. We're trying to insulate the soil so the pine tree doesn't make its soil acidic. And we're trying to insulate it from that. Now listen, the only way I know to understand this is from an illustration out of my life. I was raised in, in South Texas. I was raised on the coast. My grandmother lived in Rockport, Texas, which is unbelievable uh, saltwater fishing. And so I grew up saltwater fishing. And so we'd, we'd get out there and, and we'd fish the jetties, we'd fish the flats, uh, we'd fish for speckled trout and uh, redfish and flounder and, and, and all those other fish. And, and we'd catch a lot of fish. And then we'd bring them in, we'd clean them, and we would fry them because we're Texans and we fry everything. And so we would fry them. And here's the amazing thing about a fish that, that has lived in salt water its entire life. I have to salt it. The meat's not salty. I mean, how is that? How is that? It's because it's been insulated. It has been in the salt water, but not all the salt water. So how does a Christian... How does a Christian insulate itself? Because we, we get at the scales, insulate the fish. But how does a Christian, you know how a Christian insulates themselves? You're, you're going to get direction from one or two places in your life. The world or the word. The way that we insulate ourselves is from the Bible, from the word. The problem today is that many Christians... Many denominations, many churches automatically accept the world's standard, even though God says it's wrong. Common sense tells us that the majority of, of Americans are not Christians. So then we know if we're following the crowd, we're not following him. John said in, in in 1 John 2, 17, he says, And the world is passing away along with its, its desires. In other words, the world is not evolving. The world is decaying. The world is de-evolving. And we're watching that in society right now. But whoever does, watch this, but whoever does the will of God, whoever lives an effective life, whoever lives an intentional life, 
abides abides forever. I'm telling you, you're, you're, you'll never discover God's will by worrying what everybody thinks about you. I'd destroy myself if I worried about what everyone thinks about me, and you're the same way. Understanding this issue of God's will. And let me ask you, where, where do you get your direction from in life, the world or the word? How many minutes a day do you even spend in his word? Do you open up his word? Do you read his word? Do you trust his word? Do you believe, do you believe it is the word of God? Third and the last thing about spiritual formation is this. Spiritual formation is transformational. Verse 2 again, he says, do not be conformed to this world. It's an interesting statement. We'll understand that. But be transformed how? By the renewal of your mind, cultivating the soil of your life, that by testing you may discern what is the will of God, what is good and acceptable and, and perfect. In other words, what he's telling us is the Holy Spirit's role. Listen, a lot of churches don't talk a whole lot, of, uh, a lot about the Holy Spirit, right? Uh, but he's part of the Trinity. God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit is co-equal. The Holy Spirit is a part of the Trinity. In fact, as the Bible tells us that when we become a Christian, the Holy Spirit comes into our life. The Holy Spirit guides us, teaches us, uh, illuminates our minds so that we can understand Scripture, um, gives us direction, uh, ministers to us. I mean, when you listen, the Holy Spirit is not an it. The Holy Spirit is, is a person. The Holy Spirit is the one that guides us and begins the, the, the transformation process in our life. Uh, we would know it as, as metamorphosis. It's the picture of, of a caterpillar becoming a butterfly. Now listen, I'm telling you, the ministry of the Holy Spirit is powerful in your life, and it's powerful in my life, to where we understand that, and we understand this metamorphosis period. And so he says... He says, do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed. In other words, to be changed. Listen, I'm telling you, I am so thankful I am not stuck in my past. I am so thankful that I'm not the same person that I was. I mean, I don't know about you, and I don't know what your life looked like when you met Christ. My life was a wreck. And I am so thankful that is not me anymore. And listen, I'm going to tell you this. I'm not the same person I was. I'm not the same man I was a year ago that I am today. You can ask my wife. I, listen, I'm not the same husband or dad that I was 10 years ago today. And by God's grace, I'm not going to be the same person a year from now. This metamorphosis is the picture of becoming more like Christ, of looking more like him. It's being totally changed. It's the picture of a, of a caterpillar and a, and a butterfly. But, but for the caterpillar to become a butterfly, for the caterpillar to become a butterfly and fly and be free, the caterpillar has to do what? It has to shed the cocoon. You know, you know what the cocoon is in your life? It's your former way of living. One of the glaring statistics of the local church when they do surveys, the average person who attends church, their life, life looks just the same as the person who doesn't attend church. They make decisions the same way. They say the same things. They go to the same places. They say there's just, there's just not any different, yet God has called us to be distinctive people. See, 
the cocoon in your life, the cocoon in my life, is us putting off that old way of living, putting off that former way of living, and putting on the righteousness of Christ. And putting on, I mean, the, the, the metamorphosis process will be totally completed when we see Christ face to face. And 2 Corinthians 3.18, it says, and we all, with unveiled faces, beholding the glory of God. So, you know how you behold the glory of God? Behold means to, to look at, to contemplate. You know how you behold the glory of God? By reading his word. His word is God revealing himself to man. And being transformed into the same image from one degree of glory to another. For this comes from the Lord who is, or who is the spirit. And so Paul is talking about this issue of God's will. And he tells us that God's will is... It, it, it's, it's good and it's acceptable and it's perfect. There are so many people that are just so scared to death of God's will because they're worried that, you know what? If I tell God I'll do whatever he wants me to do, he's going to ask me to do something that's miserable. If I tell him I want to follow him and I'll do whatever he asks, I'm going to end up, I'm going to end up ministering to pygmies like half across the world. I'm going to starve to death and I'm going to die. But Paul says, wait a minute, God's will for you, it's good. It's acceptable, and it's perfect. That word perfect means tailor-made. It's the picture of going out and buying a tailor-made suit that is made specifically to your dimensions, to specifically to your body, to where you're the only one that would be able to wear that dress. You're the only one that would be able to wear that suit. That there's no way you could take that and place that on someone else because it's tailor-made. It was specifically made for you. And guess what? God has a will for your life that is tailor-made for you. That's why you should never want to be someone else. There's only one you. And if you are not you, nobody else will be. God has a will for your life that is tailor-made. It is not to harm you. It is good. It is acceptable. And it is perfect. The key to following God God, I'm, I'm going to do whatever you ask me to do. And I'm going to leave the results up to you. Because you love me. Because you care for me. And you have a future for me. That is good. That is acceptable. So you bow your heads with me and close your eyes. Let me ask you this afternoon just real quickly. What is God saying to you? as a result of this message. Now, for, for some of you, you may, you may need to accept him for the very first time, to ask him to come into your life and forgive you of your sins and give you the gift of a, eternal life. I mean, for some of you, this is just a starting point of the Christian life and saying, God, for the first time, I'm asking you to come into my life and to forgive me. For those of you that are believers, what's God asking you to do? Is he bringing you to the point in some circumstances in your life? Because God will do that. Is he bringing you to the point in your life into some circumstances that are around you to help you understand you need him? That's what he did with me. Is he orchestrating some things around your life to where there's a reminder that, you know what, I'm not as smart as I thought I was. And I don't want to continue this pattern
Is He asking you to trust Him and say, I'm going to follow you. And I'm going to start putting off that old way of life and I'm going to identify what that is in my life. And I'm going to start putting on a new way of living. And I'm going to leave the results up to you. And I'm just going to trust you. I'm going to read your word and I'm going to apply it to my life. Try to develop and I'm going to apply it to my relationships. Maybe you're here this morning and you say, you know what, I, I'm carrying a burden and, and I need prayer. Where you're in a good place because we'd love to have the opportunity to pray for you. So if you need prayer in any area of your life, we want to we pray for you. So in just a few minutes after I pray and we stand, if you need prayer in any area of your life, I'm just going to ask you that if you need prayer, you, as we stand up together in a few moments, that you step out and begin making your way down. Oh, last year, we prayed for over 3,000 people in the front of this church. We have story after story what God has done. People just humbled themselves and prayed. You may want to pray for yourself. There may be a friend that's going through a difficult time, and you're, you're coming down to pray for them. That's okay. If you're carrying a burden and you need prayer, you come. Father, we thank you for today. We thank you for your love, and we thank you for your grace. Father, we thank you for the power of your word and the power of your name. Father, we ask that you'd pull us really closely together. People would respond to you. That they'd understand that they're not responding to a preacher. They're not responding to a church. They're, they're responding to you and you alone. May burdens be lifted. May prayers be answered. May people know that they have met with you today. For we ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen.